Hello, everyone. Welcome to 12 O'Clock Talks with Jack and Dave. I'm Jack, and this is Dave. Howdy, howdy. On this podcast, we aim to share our weekly tangent conversations that often give us insight into each other's lives, and for some reason, we thought it'd be a good idea to share it with the world. We're excited to welcome you to our pilot episode, where we discuss topics from carrots and condoms in World War II to The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. We want to start every episode with a riddle, and this week that riddle is, what makes you young? Tune in next week to hear what the answer is. But with that being said, let's crack on with the episode. Alrighty, hello, hello, Dave. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good, man. I'm good. So you texted me last week, and you said, I think I've got a couple topics. And the first one really surprised me. You said that you wanted to talk about carrots and condoms in World War II. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a, um, very, it's a very Dave thing to text me. No, I... Um... It was actually a TikTok I watched. Okay. And, Good source. Um, well, you know, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> but so I watched this TikTok, and it was about how the United States was, I believe it was the United States, was going to, like, watch, launch this campaign in the middle of World War Two to deter... The Russian no to deter the Germans and make them feel bad and so the the idea was they're going to get a bunch of planes and have like drop packages that were that would look like they were intended for like allied troops and it would be like a little bit of porn I think and then just like huge condoms and the idea behind it was you could demoralize the opposing army by making them feel like they had little weenies compared to everyone they're fighting. <laughs> and so they um, wanted to, the occupation of Stalingrad, they wanted to drop a bunch of condoms on the city. <laughs> and somehow, and somehow deter the Russians by thinking yeah. that the Americans just were using Magnum XLs. Yeah, just had huge peens. And so like, <laughs> all, like they just were inferior on all, sex counts oh my god okay yeah and so the idea is that americans obviously were you know big in that necessary area and bigger yeah. big they had johnsons. bigger bigger, <clears throat> bigger big, guns big old johnsons and they were coming through the land and they were snatching up your women and showing them what a real man looks like Wow, like that, that was is, like a wild thing. Sounds um, very 1940s post, yeah. uh, like pre post structuralism. Yeah, cut type thought. Yeah, <laughs> but like it. Like, so did I it work? No. How did they? I don't how did know they... if they actually did it. I can't find any. Um, I found one article. Okay, but it's not the most. Like they they, they quote, like. They quote different things of where they got their different books of where they got it. Okay. But. Well, where did this come from? So. What was the idea behind it? Like, wh who, who came up with this idea that, like, you know, you could demoralize an entire army just by dropping big condoms on them? Um, I, d I don't know. I do. I see. I wish I could figure out where, like, what meeting they were like, you know what? We're going to do this. This sounds like a great idea. Um, so Stalingrad, 
like was pretty key for the Nazi regime, right? Right, industrial and hub. The German army reaches Stalingrad in like 42. They try to take over the city. Well, basically take over the majority of the city. But the Soviets just like held on. Okay. And so the, the original plan was we need to drop, like it was we are dropping supplies for the Soviets so that they can survive the Nazi conquest. Right. But the article I read said the plan was called Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe was the air. I, yeah. I should have. Like, Dave, I don't, we did, I we did, speak we did, we did four months in Austria. You should be okay. able to say Luftwaffe. Yeah. You should, you should be able to do that. You know, it, there were, there were a lot of times on that trip that I just pronunciation. Okay. Well, anyway, so the German, the, yeah. The German yeah. Luftwaffe. Yeah. So they were going to deliver stuff, but they didn't <laughs> they ended up delivering. This is says cellophane grenade covers. Fish food, ground peppers, or ground pepper, and a massive condom shipment. And that's just what they dropped on the Germans. What? (laughs) So funny. But yeah. But so, and then you go into those like, well, if this was a thing, what other things did they not teach me in the quality of public education I got from the United States? Um, do you know, and this this goes into the carrots, you know how carrots are good for your eyesight? Supposedly. So they, they are good for your eyesight, but there was, like, a lot of people believe they help you see in the dark and, like, like give you, like, higher quality of eyesight. Carrots are good for maintaining your eyesight due to the high vitamin A levels. Ah, but, okay. So during Blitzkrieg, on England, they would have a bunch of blackouts, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of twofold. The city would black out during Blitzkrieg, and the British Air Force or the British Royal Air developed a new like targeting system for combating against Blitzkrieg, and they didn't want the Germans to know about it. Okay. And so they used the fact that the country was under a sugar shortage and carrots were being pushed as an alternative to sugar in the UK. Interesting. They, they made it to where they're like, if you eat carrots, you can see at night during the blackouts. And so like they like huge propaganda campaign about convincing all of these Brits that, hey, one, carrots are going to be good because you can use it as an alternative to sugar. Two, it's going to make you see in the dark. Night vision. And, yeah, it's going to, if you eat enough carrots, you will get night vision. And that's why, like, they were able to shoot down so many planes is because all of their soldiers were just getting pumped with carrots. And so they could <laughs> see all the planes flying at night where it was just, you know, a new radar system that they had developed and so and it didn't end after world war ii it now has become a thing where people are like well you need to eat your carrots to see better it's like no you need to eat your carrots just to maintain general eye health because having a good vitamin supply of all of the vitamins we need in life is good 
So you're but telling that me the... that the old, like the wives' tale, so to speak, of eating carrots to help your vision stems from World War II propaganda in England? Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'm, I'm on the Smithsonian Magazine website. Okay. And this is where I was getting a lot of information from. And I'm looking at a propaganda poster. It's a soldier, you know, just like your typical World War II soldier looking guy holding a gun. And there's a big text box on the bottom of it that says, eat carrots and leafy green or yellow vegetables, rich in vitamin A, essential for night sight. Essential for night sight? Oh, my God. Yeah. Night sight can mean life or death. Eat leafy carrots or yellow vegetables, rich in vitamin Mm -hmm. A. Where's the where's the uh, where's the citation for this? Is this APA? <laughs> Dr. Is, Carrot, a children's best friend. Oh my god, this propaganda dude, is amazing. Isn't it great? Dig for victory. <laughs> Digging carrots. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Okay, we're gonna have to include some of these. Like in order to get the word out to the Germans that they didn't have like advanced technology they had to convince their country that carrots made them look see better at night okay that begs the question how many (laughs) other how many other like odd kind of things that we were told growing up stemmed from a form or like world war ii propaganda food pyramid the food pyramid okay really so yeah um the food pyramid it was very grain heavy yeah but um, so I don't know if it's necessarily World War II propaganda, but a lot of that came from farmer lobbyists because they needed grain cells to go up. And so the, the fact that we became very carb heavy and grain heavy in our diet was to save the farming industry. Wow. Well, then it worked, um, right? It did work. But like, if you look at a modernized food pyramid, yeah. Where the bread is should be vegetables, not just carbs. Because breads, bread, rice, potatoes, pasta, and other starchy foods don't contain mm-hmm. hardly any nutritional value. Yeah. Interesting. They've got milk, cheese, and yogurt above fruits and veg, too. Like mm-hmm. below meat, fish, and eggs, nuts, and pulses. That's really interesting. So, mm-hmm. why? How did you come across this? You said it was a TikTok? Yeah, the TikTok was about the condoms. And then you just kind of spiral. And you just <laughs> keep clicking links. And then you're like... You went down a rabbit hole? Yeah. Can you imagine trying to... How would you explain that? You know, because it's tax dollars hard at work, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, who was, who was the guy who was like, I have a great idea? It was like probably some like fringe psychologist right during the time. Like I have a great idea to demoralize the uh, to ger- to demoralize the Germans who were, I may note, like hopped up on methamphetamine during any Blitzkrieg. Yeah. So like dropping massive condoms on them is going to demoralize them. It's like, can you just imagine if you mm-hmm. dropped, you know, some some consumer drug like an opiate or a Prozac and labeled it as methamphetamine on them? Yeah. And they just like, got them flipped up. That would have probably insane. probably done better, you know. But condoms? <laughs> what if they had latex allergies? Maybe that yeah. was the bigger. Maybe that was. Like, <laughs> maybe that. Maybe that was the bigger play, right? They would go into anaphylactic shock because they have a latex allergy. 
Do you think they poked holes in the condoms? Well, they wouldn't want to do that, would they? Well, not not well. Maybe because the, well, the well the idea the whole idea of the German like the German philosophy was to like extend their Aryan mm. lineage. That's a good point. You so you wouldn't to... you wouldn't you wouldn't want to help with that. You'd want to put an end to it. Mm. Hence, heavy latex condoms. Heavy latex condoms. Okay, well... <laughs> okay, I, last thing. What if they developed the condoms to be just the most uncomfortable things? Like, they were like... Like the wow. flavored... Like, oh, like flavored... Like, just a massive drop of flavored condoms. Yeah, it was like, holy cow. They have ginormous... Johnsons. And yes. they also just are... Like, tough like leather because the inside of this condom feels like sandpaper. God... Like, oh, it was just on multiple levels. Can you imagine, like, being a starving German outside Stalingrad and thinking you're intercepting, like, a massive package drop of food, aid, water, like, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And you open it, and it's just condoms and bar- and grenade covers? Like, the disappointment. Yeah. Like, you're in the middle of a Russian winter fighting uh, people that do not give up, ever. And you just need, like, a slight morale boost. You're out of all your amphetamines. You're, like, finally coming down off this high you've been on for six months. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you see this package drop, and you're like, wow, these idiots. Finally, something something's going our way. And then all of a sudden, you open it, and it just, like, it falls out, and it's just a bunch of flavored condoms. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you went, okay, so I found something. And this is just kind of crazy going back. Okay. So... The Office of the Secretary of Agriculture calculated, like, a way to do the food pyramid as a way of accepting the food industry. Quote, our recommendation of three to four daily servings of whole grain breads and cereals was changed to a whopping six to 11 servings forming the base of the food pyramid as a concession to the processed wheat and corn industry. (laughs) It was lobbying efforts. That's why we were told that we need to eat a lot of bread. It's like a it's like a bad sitcom. Like American politics, yeah. it's like a bad sitcom. It's like, oh, you lobbyists, back mm-hmm. at it again. Oh man, they doubled the recommended servings and the profits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big yeah. ag, baby. Big ag. We Big ag. It's while the, the topsoil's eroding now. That's a topic for another time, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all right. I saw this thing the other day, okay, and it it has to do with like, um, you know, can you picture you're a German soldier, right, mm-hmm. in winter, and your morale is like super low, right, because it's snowing, it's cold, like you can't change the conditions, and arguably like, you know, their their attitudes are probably pretty bad, right, mm-hmm. okay. Seeing the condoms is probably a pretty pretty big Debbie Downer there, right? But the the amount of like mental fortitude it would take to hold Stalingrad in the middle of winter against the Germans, like, can you imagine? Like, what what do you think? What do you think that the people in Stalingrad were thinking at the time? And then, do you think? Do you really think that? Like, how would they quantify how? successful a condom drop was 
Yeah, see, I don't Did they know try that to? was. I I don't know if it actually got dropped. It was really hard to find anything about it. Um. But. Or can you imagine like I've your heard... military allies just dropping condoms on people, being like, "You could send us guns, but you chose to drop condoms." Mm-hmm. What were you gonna say? I just I don't know how you would figure out. Because like, how do you figure out propaganda is working until you know that it worked, right? Like the um, the long term process of propaganda is convincing people of something that is not true or is only semi true. So you only realize like realize it works if people believe it. Like I don't know how you can track the process of propaganda does that make sense yeah it's like just like a larger social effect rather than like a quantification of anything yeah like you wouldn't know if the germans thought they had smaller wieners until you talk to a german soldier and he said well they got big wieners over there (laughs) how could we beat them why did you you why did you retreat like like how else are you gonna get that confirmation besides the you know, some undercover reporting. Like, how do you feel about? That's your that's your secret mission. <laughs> like, you've you've been assigned to interview German soldiers soldiers to ascertain how big they think our Johnsons are. I'm sorry, sir. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah, you heard me. Okay, yes, sir. Like, good luck. Go get at her. Oh my get god. Get at her. Okay. Well, on a more serious note. The other topic you texted me was the art of making difficult decisions. Which I was like, okay, that makes sense. Right? You just took a new job. Congratulations. Thank you. Big boy, big boy life moves. Big happening. boy jobs. Yeah. No more school. No so more school. is that what spawned this topic or? Yeah. So I was in a great a great problem. I had a great problem. And the great problem was I had multiple job offers to choose from. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty came from they were all in different cities. Okay. They were based upon like the living conditions of like, I guess, the cost of living in each city. Pretty much on par with the same amount of money. All of them were doing what I wanted to do for the most part. Mm -hmm. And they were all like, if I didn't have a choice, I would have been happy with going to any of these places. But it, like the first job, they tell you it's supposed to be like a three year commitment. You know, you gotta, you gotta be there long enough to get experience. And before you can think about doing anything else. And so it was, hey, what do I want to do for the next three years? And since I have other offers in a year and a half, am I going to regret it and think about what if? Like, how do you you make the correct choice? It's kind of where, that's where I was at the time when we were talking about this last week. Yeah. Because at that point I hadn't chosen. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how did you how did you make the decision? What was your um, process? When did you have one? 
Well, so <laughs> there's um, I think it's Roman. It may be Greek. I don't know. There was a I came across this one time, and it was basically, if you have a good idea, sober, you need to make sure drunk you would still do it, or vice versa. And this is not the healthiest thing, but I made a T-chart with all of the uh-huh. jobs <laughs> and looked at them and thought about it for a day, completely sober, you know, figured out like, hey, I'm kind of leaning this way. I think this one's actually like moved down from a high contender to the third place of a thing, whatever. Redid it after drinking. And when I made the same, like came to the same conclusion, I was okay with my choice. I I remember an experience like that in college. Yeah, it, it did. Start it with it, that. it it <clears throat> did work. It worked really well. Yeah. Um, so T charts, and like, because you get to look at it twice, right? Because I mean, if you, however you want to put it, like, drunk me and sober me may not make the same decisions, but if they do, it's probably what I actually want to do. Right. And this is only like not like just for like thought process stuff. It's yeah. not necessarily the healthiest I'm gonna agree with, but and has yet to steer me wrong. That and coin flips. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like just, just literally flipping a coin. I think mm-hmm. what's what's the saying? It's like you should always flip a coin on something because while the coin is in the air, you realize the decision you actually want it to be. Mm-hmm. Did that if happen you're... to you, or you um, didn't use it for this process, right? Um, no, I didn't. It, I didn't use it because I didn't think I need to. I was really happy with my decision making. But yeah, so for people who don't know, um, the the coin flipping thing is like if you have to make a decision between two things. Label one of them heads, the other one's tails. If you're disappointed with whatever shows up, then you know what you actually want to do. Yeah. And if you truly don't care, you leave it up to the coin. And right. I have used that for like choosing where I want to eat versus, you know, semi-decent financial decisions. <laughs> and it's been okay. So I feel like predicting the long-term outcome of anything is a gamble anyway. Because mm-hmm. there's so many things out of your control. What like, was your so, process like, like? For... Like, job stuff. Dude, honestly, um, it was a marriage of convenience. So I knew that coming out of college, I wasn't... Because, you know, we moved to here um, because of Sid's job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I don't want to do long distance, so... I'll just get a job doing what I'm doing now, but I'll move to College Station and do it, not knowing that like this is this is one of the best markets to do it in. So luck. Mm-hmm. Um, I still had two classes left at, at school, which I had I had two saints as teachers, and they moved them online for me, so I didn't have to stay in uh, in Abilene. Nice. Um, and then, dude, printed out my resumes and went to every single property that my company managed and was like, "Hey, can you hire me?" Because I didn't have a job. Mm-hmm. and then just was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I may as well do it to the best of my ability. And 
just kept telling people that like what I wanted, what my goal was. It was really weird. Cause like, you know, that goal setting thing where you write something on a whiteboard, put it in your bathroom. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> I mean, I made the decision that like, that was what I was going to do and that nothing was going to stop me. And so took every opportunity that I could. And then event like now I'm here. And is it something that like my degree pertains to? No. But at the end of the day, I think it was about self-preservation and providing for, you know, the people that I care about and that I love. So it's not something that like I enjoy doing to get to work with like so many amazing people. But if I told you that it was my passion, I think that it would, there are aspects of it and characteristics of the job where I'm passionate about, but it is not like the job I saw myself doing. But whereas you, you like your degree is literally like you are using it in your job and you have to pick between people trying to take you right. They're like, no, come work mm-hmm. for us, come work for us, come work for us. Mine was never that it was, this is my only option right now. I can't do anything else. I don't feel like I can do anything else. I've already put a year of my life into this. I may as well just continue down this road until another opportunity arises. I think that's a really, you know, a big mistake in my opinion that a lot of people make is that trying, like you wait so long for the perfect opportunity to arise that, and I was, I was, I've always been stifled by this as well. Like, Funnily enough, like this is kind of one of the topics later, but you know, you know, obsessing over perf- like perfection, like a perfect scenario, right? Like in middle school, I wouldn't play any sports because I, I thought I was I wasn't the best at them, right? And I played mm-hmm. soccer not because well, because I thought I was really good at soccer, but I didn't play basketball or football or you know any cross country track. Like I didn't do anything because I couldn't be the best at it, and like I couldn't mm-hmm. perfect it, so to speak, and so. After college, I was like, screw it. It's okay not to, you know, not to be perfect at it as long as it's like, you know, as long as you're trying really, really hard, I guess. And you can look in one thing I think I tell my teams is like, if you look in the mirror every single day and you can tell yourself you did everything you could to be better and to get what you need to get done today, then you're okay. And I never Mm -hmm. used to do that. It was always like, why aren't you better than X, Y, and Z person? And it always, always stifled it. But yeah, I think going back to, I think the, for me, I think a lot of people get stifled right out of college or in high school on like finding the perfect job scenario, you know, finding the perfect job culture, you know, finding the perfect work place or space or to be in or waiting until the opportune time to start something. And I don't think that that, in my opinion, that's not the best way to go about things. There's a difference mm-hmm. between planning and, you know, taking the time to plan and then executing and just being and procrastinate while planning. And feeling like you're doing something. And it's easy to say, like, the world's against me. Woe is me. You know, that kind of mentality. But it's all about, in my opinion, it's all about how you interact with the rest of the world around you. But, yeah, I was pigeonholed pretty much. Long story short, I didn't have to make a decision. The decision was made for me. And once the decision was made for me, I took it and ran with it. Mm. Got very lucky along the way, too. I think luck plays a big thing. (laughs) Luck luck is huge, man. But is it luck or... Well, maybe there is a little bit of luck, right? But yeah. is it luck or the ability, like you said, not to have this plan that you can't veer away from? You know, <laughs> like like you go to a new town and you think you're going to be doing A. Well, you run into someone at a coffee shop and they offer you B. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. Like. That's not. It, that's only luck if you take the opportunity. If you turn it down, like you're still in the same spot. Like the yeah. the ability to have the courage to go, 
you know, why not? Why not try it? Yeah, and I think it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that maybe luck sometimes is conflated with like luck and hard work or luck and being opportunistic can be often conflated. Well, you're lucky you met that person. Why well, said hi to mm-hmm. them first? You know, or yeah, it's like, like, well, you well, you met this person at the bar and that's how you got your job. Yeah, but I went to the bar alone and not a lot of people mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I would you put yourself in opportune situations and places where you can be lucky there's a song uh you know the band american aquarium i do not uh they have a song called the harder you work or it's called the luckier you get Mm -hmm. and it's it's all about like how he essentially the lead singer wrote the song about how he um he got lucky overnight in 25 years Mm. you know like he it was like he started you know college wasn't for him I've heard that song so many times I could probably quote it to you. But like college wasn't for him. So he started writing songs and he started playing for free. And then after he started playing for free, some people thought he was good enough to sing. So they started paying him a little bit of money to sing. And, you know, over and over, like it, he seemed like a disappointment. Like he wrote a song called Losing Side of 25 as well. And it's like everyone's going off and getting jobs and higher educations. And I'm just kind of here. And he's talking about like this whole process in which he's just playing music and writing it for free and, you know, not making any money. And it seems like his life is stagnant. And all of a sudden his music's on Spotify. He's, they're touring, you know, mm-hmm. overnight in 25 years, they become a success. And it's like, he, his, the song is called essentially the luckier you get. And the main theme is like the harder you work, the luckier you get, right? The more you, you more you put yourself in opportune situations, the more, the more it seems like luck that you're in a, like, like you're there and Mm -hmm. i think you know yeah i can attribute i think luck is a um is an easy way to deflect like own own feelings of uh like almost being self-righteous you know Mm -hmm. like oh well i did this all myself you know well no i was lucky to do it and i think it's somewhere in the middle right like it's like just being uncomfortable with the whole like with acknowledging the fact like almost like an imposter syndrome where you go, mm-hmm. I don't deserve what I have, so I was lucky. I was lucky to get it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. I think you are. There are certain aspects of life that are luck, though, and chance, whatever, however you want to call it, luck mm-hmm. if it's positive, chance if it's if it's negative. But like the family that you're born into, the time you're born, the area you're born. There's mm-hmm. a really good Malcolm Gladwell book, um, and it's called, oh my gosh. I need to, I'm pulling up the name of it now. Um, but essentially he talks about like how people, oh, it's called outliers, right? So Bill Gates, you know, Bill Gates, all these massive tech gurus, um, any professional sports athlete, you know, he breaks down all of these things. And when you look at it, Bill Gates was born into a family, a very well-educated family that he also had access to a computer at a very young age, right before the internet came out. Right. Mm -hmm. And he also spent a lot of time on the computer. Right. But he was able to have access at this time in this time of um, in this period of time Mm -hmm. in a family, in an area, in a city with access. And he was able to do all of these things. So did he work hard? Yes. But is he an outlier? No, because it could have happened to any one of us. Right. Mm -hmm. The same thing with professional basketball players. Right. If you have a wingspan of X amount, you have a one in three chance of going to the NBA. A one in a 33% chance of going to the NBA. So are they outliers or are they 
just regular people who got lucky and got tall with good genetics, you know? And I'm not just, mm-hmm. dis- I'm not discrediting the hard work that it does take to go to these places. Right. But mm-hmm. when you're born with something like this, that is luck. What you do with it is, you know, the hard work and dedication that comes into it. There's plenty of tall people who aren't in the NBA, but I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would go on to, I would probably argue or posit that if those people worked hard enough when they were younger in their developmental stages and they were in the right conditions. So they're in areas in which basketball is popular. They belong to a family that can afford to put them on a travel team. They know someone who knows someone who is at a, a big school, right? Or they get noticed mm-hmm. one day at a high school event. You know, mm-hmm. their high school is ranked. They go to a big enough high school to where it makes it onto the, the big stage kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. All of these different factors, like that's luck. That's where you're born into. It's where you're born. It's who you're born to. What you do with it is the hard work and skill, I think, is, is pretty much the point of the book. Great book, mm-hmm. actually great book interesting that's a good point but yeah i do think it's often it's often conflated and it's often i think a way of like for someone to say that they're lucky is often a way of deflecting like an imposter syndrome kind of view on the world or like a self-righteous position Mm -hmm. but but yeah so kind of going off of that funnily enough i was reading a book called the art of resilience by um mr edgeworthy and it's about this guy who swims around he swims 1870 miles around the coast of great britain right he's the first person ever to do it he leaves from margate takes him 170 something days um to swim around and he doesn't step foot on land um until he gets back to margate essentially and so he has a boat trailing him and following him. Ross Edgley, sorry. Um, he has a boat trailing him, right? And he, he develops this thing that he calls sports, uh, sports science stoicism, right? And it's essentially the combination of building a physiologically strong body with a psychologically strong, like a, like a mentally strong mind and combining the two and saying that they're not different, right? And towards the end of the book, he talks about this, um, this stoic like proverb so to speak and it's about a carriage and uh, two carriages and two dogs right and a hill and there are same scenario right two hills right two dogs and two carriages the dogs are tied up to the carriages and these carriages are careening down this hill right at like full speed right there's no stopping these carriages okay and one dog is just being dragged along by the carriage right? He is hating his life, like hating it. He's hitting all the rocks on the way down. You know, he's just being dragged and he's hating it. And then on the other hill, the other dog who's chained up to the carriage is running alongside of it and smiling and looking at the trees and the sky and just trying to, and just keeping up because he acknowledges he can't control what the carriage is doing, but he can control his attitude towards the carriage. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, you know, that idea that you can't control, right, to your, to your point, you can't control the future, which is why decisions on the future are so difficult. But acknowledging the fact that you can't control it and doing what serves your best interest right now, as long as it's not a detriment to you in the future. For example, if you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go and, you know, rob a bank because it's going to make me rich immediately. No, like that's not what we're talking about here. But if you go, well, this job keeps me in a town that I'm comfortable in, it pays well, 
And I know that I can continue to expand my network here over the next year. And who knows what happens in three years, but I know I can control what happens right now. Mm -hmm. Then the decision becomes really easy, right? Like you remove all forms of uncertainty when you're trying to make big decisions. And when you remove all forms of uncertainty, then, you know, you're there. Whereas your situation, that's your situation, right? My situation Mm -hmm. was the opposite. Like I moved not knowing if I would have a job not knowing what would happen, right? But what, you, what we did do is we, I printed out the resumes and I went to everywhere and I said, hey, please hire me. <laughs> like you do, you do something mm-hmm. about it. You can't control the environment that you're in. I couldn't control where Sydney got a job or you know, where I was working or the fact that I was behind. Well, I could have controlled the fact I was behind on arrows because I failed two classes. But <laughs> that's beside the point, <laughs> right? That's beside the point. The, the fact that I couldn't control the situation I was in at that moment. And yeah. so what I could control was I could move and I could get out of Abilene, which arguably broke a lot of habits, bad, really bad habits that I'd fallen into mm-hmm. and, you know, put me on like a, not a new path, but like a different, a different way of, you know, interacting with the world around me. But I thought I loved that story. I loved it. Yeah. And I think it's, kind of crazy too like the whole shot in the dark whatever as you are leaving Abilene and you are like you said if it works it works if it doesn't you're gonna have to figure out a way to make it work yep Um, but I think there's something to say about being in a brand new town or a brand new city that forces you, like you said, to get out of old habits, but forces you to do things. Because if you don't know anybody, you're going to have to do uncomfortable things to get to know people. If you don't have a job, like you said, you're going to have to hit the streets with resumes, walk into buildings, say, I'm new in town. Do you have a job or do you know anybody that's hiring? Like, I think putting yourself in a situation where you have no alternative, but to do the uncomfortable is a really good thing that should be repeated every once in a while, just to remind yourself that you can do hard things. And, and not being afraid of no, like the word no. I feel like everyone's afraid of the word no. Yeah. And that was like, so, like some of the people I'm studying with, they are still on their job search journey. And whenever I would, talk to them and because I talked to a bunch of people about making the decision right it wasn't solely just me making a t-chart and winging it like I got a lot of advice from different people different opinions and some people's opinions I credited more than others but whenever I would run through the scenario with people specifically people who were still looking for jobs or hadn't really started the job search process it was it looked easier than it was like I applied because originally I wanted to be go back to Abilene. I applied to every firm in Abilene that had more than three people at it. One called me back. Like, yeah, that's and that was one of the offers. But it's like I, for that one offer, there was fifteen no's. Mm. You know, do the same thing for the city that I'm in now. Do the same thing for the areas that I started looking elsewhere. There was a lot of phone calls and a lot of cold calls that were just no. And so I think it takes 
50 or 60 no's to get a yes sometimes. And that is kind of part of the beautiful process. I mean, it teaches you so much, right? Like just not caring about what anyone thinks about you. When you realize that nobody, now this, I mean, this in the most positive way possible. When you realize that nobody cares about you, right? Mm-hmm. Except for the people who actually do care about you, if that makes any sense at all. Strangers mm-hmm. don't care who you are. Your followers on Twitter don't care who you are. Your followers on Instagram, TikTok don't care who you are, right? There's probably a good group of 20 people who really care about who you are, what you do, how you interact with the world around you, right? Because those are the people you have direct influence over. A random job, a random person who sees your resume on Indeed isn't going to care that you, well, might care that you have a 2.36 GPA. They might care that your GPA is 4.0. They might care about your GPA, but why do you care what they think? Right. If you see the job, mm-hmm. freaking apply to it, you know, mm-hmm. like, why not? I mean, when I moved here, I, I dropped off the resumes, but the pay wasn't great. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I went, OK, I went on Indeed, uploaded my resume and started. I set the salary range for like above 80K or something. And mm-hmm. I was I just started applying to all these jobs I was wildly unqualified for, like yeah. four to five years of managerial experience, you know, master upper level educations, you know different industries and all this stuff and i actually got a call back and ended up going to like the third stage of interviews with someone i think before they realized that i was wildly unqualified for the position mm-hmm. but it was a it was a really like humbling experience because you realize that you can with 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 the advent of the internet and all these networking sites and everything i'm not saying go around like brown nosing everyone what i am saying is like don't limit yourself and don't be afraid of the word no like mm-hmm. you said, you called all the places in Abilene, and only three got, came back, and one was a job offer. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's I'd say that's pretty good. And how I, I bet that didn't take you all but a day, right? To do like you know maybe the research on it and make calls. Like the total time that you spent on the phone is probably less than twenty four hours, right? Or the total time you spent sending emails is probably less than twenty four hours. Is that would I be right in saying that? Yeah, and it was. It was probably a two-day process. I okay. called everybody on day one, and then on people who were like, say, they were like, no, we've never, we don't know if we're looking for anything, whatever. I would just show up the next day and be like, I called you yesterday. Here's my resume. If you even think you want to, I'd love to meet with you. Like, And just kind of did a like a double tap. I was like, knocking on the glass and they say, well, we're not sure if I got a not sure instead of a no, the next day I went and delivered resumes. Yeah. And one of the, we're not sure's called me back. So I mean, but, but, yeah, but yeah, like total time, five hours Two, yeah. Like <laughs> you took, you took less than say what you said, five hours, less than, less than a day. Right. To just go out and get rejected all day and one of those rejections turned in wasn't like one of those soft rejections turned into like a hard yes with a job yeah. offer you yeah. know i mean so but yeah that's why i liked i loved that analogy or that story with the dog in the carriage because you can control you could have said well they said they're not looking or they don't know what they're looking so i'm just gonna go home mm-hmm. they didn't give me a hard yes they didn't ask me right they didn't ask me to do this so i'm not gonna go do it kind of thing i yeah. feel like you, you at a certain point, especially with higher education, you become entitled. Like, oh, I'm too good for that. 
or I don't want to do that because that's that's below me. And I've, I've seen so many people do that, and it's just it's so disheartening because nobody's nobody's too good for anything. Yeah. No, like so, like my job. I started. They're doing like a temporary job way for the rest of the semester, and I started on a Friday. And, you know, I have the, I'm about to have the degree. I have a lot of experience doing certain things. All I did was move books and rearrange the library. It's amazing, right? They said, here's a bunch (laughs) of books on the shelf. We just put it up here. It doesn't make any sense. We need it to make sense. So um, I'm glad you're in your suit. I need you to take the jacket off and move a bunch of heavy books. You're like, all right, sure. Um, and that was it and it's like like you said like you can that carriage of you know this is a bs task and you know i'm better than this why don't they hire someone to do it it's like no they hired me to do to work for them it's day one here we go i'm gonna make this library look as good as possible because everything i do you got to do it with intention which is so, which is a f- funny 180 from you in college in regards to soccer. It's like Dave, how do you never get asked to pick up cones? Because I do it really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was like, what? You're, you said I remember this. I'm pretty sure you're the one who told me this, right? I was like, how do you never have to do anything? He's like, well, when I get asked to do stuff I don't want to do, you just do it really bad. That way nobody ever asks you to do it again. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was genius. You At least know where I got that. Where? Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Roderick <laughs> Rules. The second book, I'm pretty sure. I hate you so much. <laughs> because it's the, oh, the Wimpy Kid, his older brother is Roderick. And similar thing, like, they never ask Roderick to do anything. Never ask him to, like, clean the car or whatever. And he's like, how? And he's like, well, the last time I... Cl- I think it was actually the movie, but it was like, last time he cleaned the car, he's like car wax or car polish and like oh, messed up yeah. the paint. <laughs> and then he's like, so I do every chore once and just botch it. Roderick with his band van. Yeah. Loaded diaper. Oh my gosh. Don't Great. Know how they didn't take off. Great book though. They did a, yeah. they did a show. Did they do a show? Yeah, they did do a show. Hmm. But yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> it was such it's such a bad mentality but you I mean, it works it works right yeah it, unsolicited, it honestly, it also, unsolicited advice uh, it worked out really well for school for me um because with the socratic method they just call on you and it's not great but the professor just wants to have this it's like battle of the wits type of a thing see how well you actually know the material see if you're if you if you can think really quickly whenever they throw you curveballs yeah well i was listening to a, a podcast before starting school and someone had offhandedly mentioned that their friend did this because they just didn't want to do cold calls and i learned that i don't learn if i'm on call because i can't take notes and really like engage in the conversation at the same time so I couldn't go back and rethink about the class and really digest it right and so once I've learned that about myself that cold calls don't help me learn I 
botched cold calls. Like, would talk about the wrong case, would be in the wrong, like, class, be mixing up subjects on purpose (laughs) to the point where I, like, if I was on a row to get cold call, they would skip over me. And is it embarrassing? Did everyone think I was an idiot for the first few, or I guess for most of law school? Yeah. But um, I ended up doing pretty decent and um, that's all that matters. Like if it's not graded, I was like, what's the point of stressing about this? I'm just going to botch it and see if they call me back, like call, call on me again. Well, you didn't care what other people thought about you and you did what you thought was best for you. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you've mastered stoic philosophy, Dave. Hey. No. <laughs> start, start calling you Marcus Aurelius. Uh, okay. So, Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Just in general. Thoughts? Thoughts on this guy? Isn't he short? Very short. Short King Spring, I think, is what they're saying now, though. Is he 5'8? 5'9. I'm 5'9. I'm 5'9. I, I may as well be Tom Cruise. You know, same aesthetic. And so, okay, but Tom Cruise is in a handful of movies, right? Mainly Mission Impossible on TNT at 11 p.m. at night. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in the hotel, like, that's all that's on. Maybe Mission Impossible 3 or 4 or 7, what, however many he's done now. Um, he did one during COVID. Do you remember that? Where he, like, yelled. He got, like, there was a clip of him yelling at his staff. Like, don't F this up for me. Like, the only reason we're able to do this is because everyone's wearing masks. And, um, like, all of it. Did you ever hear that? Mm-mm. Oh, dude, he got so mad. Like, some, like a producer or some, a boom mic guy had his mask down for, like, to drink water or something. And he just went off on this guy for almost ruining his movie mm. <laughs> anyway tom cruise <laughs> one of his favorite one of my favorite movies is the last samurai right and in the last samurai he is this this civil war general who used to was was in custer's brigade and as we know custer decimated the native american population with like with scorch and burn um and just women children tribes of people were just absolutely demolished right mm-hmm. and so he is an out like a raging alcoholic because he can't sleep without you know without the the memories and thoughts of like his brigade running through and like slaughtering women and children and so what he's hired to do is for those who haven't seen the movie is to go to Japan, feudal japan and take down this warlord rebellion because the warlord is opposing Western expansion and Western treaties. And the U S is a really big part in this, like trying to push this treaty on Japan to open their borders to trade, um, in the, uh, in the East. Mm-hmm. And he gets there and he realizes that like, okay, what, what's going on here? Like this army is not ready to fight. You know, the samurai are this ancient war class and they are going to kick our butts. And they get into the first battle and he fights and his essentially the entire army retreats except for him. And he gets surrounded by all these samurai and he takes out his save is his like one of the spears on the ground. And he's like stabbed a couple times and he's like fighting and the scene is really cool. He's like swinging the spear around fighting all these samurai. Um, and he ends up battling like one of the top samurai 
and he ends up killing him. And before Tom Cruise's character is killed after fighting, like the the head the head guy saves him, and he's like, no, like he fights with the spirit of like a tiger or something, I think, mm-hmm. and he's like saves him. And Tom Cruise wakes up and like all of his wounds are being healed and stuff, and he's living in this Japanese vill- feudal Japanese village, and he, he has this diary, and the diary starts out with like these savages and stuff, right? Oh, I can't believe I'm here. I need to get back. I'm trying to gather intel. And it moves to this like understanding of this like super simple but peaceful way of life. And one of the things he wrote in his diary, and I know that this is probably like, you know, a mild over dramatization or Eurocentric view of, you know, Japanese feudal culture. But one thing that stuck with me was the general's evolution, right? Through or the captain, his captain's, he was the captain, his evolution from this is terrible, I want to get out of here, where's the booze, to these people obsess over doing whatever task you're doing in the moment with absolute perfection Mm. whether it's making swords whether it's harvesting crops whether it is making tea you know whether it's sitting to eat whether it's whether it's meditating whether it's praying whether it's training to fight everything is done as a singularity and with absolute utmost focus and like the presence of mindfulness and everything in the, in everyday practice. And I couldn't help but think how like everybody lacks that today. Hmm. Like everyone lacks that. Like as, yeah. as, as we're speaking right now, I have a word document in front of me. I have my headphones in and I have our, our podcast recording on the phone, right? I'm not just focusing on communicating with you. I'm also in the back of my mind trying to focus on, okay, well, how are we going to be able to disseminate this information? Is it recording? Can I hear Dave? You know, mm-hmm. what's, what does the script look like? How am I going to document this? Right. So whilst I'm trying to focus on just communicating, I have also my journal in front of me with all of our, with our structure and our, and our, you know, standards and stuff and our agenda, you know, so not just focusing on one thing with absolute perfection. Like when you made your cup of coffee this morning, what were you doing while it was brewing? um like while i was brewing yeah like like you did did you just yeah and were you just on your phone were you watching tv Uh, like or did you just watch it brew did you like grind the beans did you put it in there did you watch the water filter through did you filter the water over it like you know no it's just instant coffee but i want to be honest with you this is just pretty much luck but i was pretty um pretty tired so I just stared at it. I wasn't intently watching it, but it was just I didn't want to. I just couldn't move. Oh my, um, my body was hurting, and I just didn't didn't want to have to walk back to the coffee machine. So I just <laughs> darn it. Okay, well, that's <laughs> like it fair. was really just lucky. But I that's mean, fair. But to your point, when you're telling me about the Last Samurai, I was reading the Wikipedia page about the Last Samurai. Yeah, like. Which is instead of just listening to you, I was also simultaneously reading about it. Yeah. And you did a great job explaining the movie. I've never seen the movie. Oh, really? You should watch yeah. it today. Great movie. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I saw that. But um, yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's like we're always multitasking, right? And I looked at my screen time this week. I don't know if anyone does this, but like you look at your screen time and it's like six and a half hours a day. Mm-hmm. Like six and a half hours what what am i possibly doing on my phone for six and a half hours 
I'll tell you not do what, any like, work on it? Like emails uh, and stuff? I guess when I'm traveling and stuff, that makes sense. Like teams and Outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's mainly like Clash Royale, right? And watching HBO Max on my phone. Mm. Yeah. But there's no social media, which I can't imagine how much more screen time I would have if I had any social media app on my phone. Oh, dude, TikTok controls my life. Yeah, it's such a bad thing. It's so bad. I say that, but we're going to have to create a TikTok account. Um, <laughs> it is, it is, it is so, it's so easy to lack mindfulness when you're on social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it is easy to get lost into it. Because, well, I mean, nothing, it's, it's constant, it's a stream of constant novel information. Right? And nothing's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Well, or, or the opposite. Everything seems perfect. And it's done through, like, constant, like, editing and all of this stuff. But, like, just focusing, like, for example, when you work out, right? You're not focusing on, like, your form, right? Most people aren't. Most people are listening to music, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Guns N' Roses or rap or, you know, classical, whatever, whatever you listen to. You're not focusing on your workout. You're focusing on how to get through it. Right? When you go on a run, you're not watching and observing around you. You're listening to your music or a podcast. You know, you don't, you always have music in, you know, when you're, when you're eating dinner, you're not being mindful about what you're eating, where it came from. You're just scoffing it down. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. so many things that like we don't, con- we're not consciously aware of anymore. And that sounds really like, really just kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but like, why well, mildly pretentious. But like I thought it was a really I thought it was a really good really good point and just like just kind of the idea of like his observation of the like everyone obsessing over the task at hand as opposed to well what am I gonna do next and what am I gonna do next after this and what am I gonna do next? No, everything was absolutely completely in the moment on what you mm-hmm. could control. Yeah. It's kinda like the oh, there's some saying it's like a like two guys are walking and they need to go through this cave and one of the guys looks at him he's like i can't see the other side i don't know if we can make it and his friend just goes well can you see the next step in front of you Mm. like yeah and he's like then just take that step keep going yeah like you don't have to see the end goal all the time just focus on where you are just knowing that it eventually will come yeah. I did that the other day. I was going on a run, right? And typically when we go on runs, like we have a mileage goal or a time goal, right? But um, with Ross Edgley's book, with like the sports stoicism idea, he was just like, I, nothing else was in my mind except for getting to Margate, which was his start and finish line, right? Mm-hmm. So he didn't focus on anything else except for putting in the miles and getting home. And that was his only goal, get home. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Just get it done. There was no like he broke several world records over the course of the swim, but none of all of them were just kind of like surprises to him. He was like, "Oh, we just did that. Oh, okay, cool." You know, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna try that." So I did a I did a run, and you know these you got to do 45 minute workouts, right? So I was like, "Okay, surely this run will take me 45 minutes." So I start from my house. And I run this like little three and a half mile, four mile loop that I uh, walk Russ with, right? Mm-hmm. And I run and I'm running and running and running and I'm not thinking. And every time I thought about 
you know, oh, like I'm so close to the end or I wonder what my pace is right now, right? I would just like stop that thought. I would acknowledge it was there and just get rid of it, mm-hmm. right? Because I didn't, I didn't want to occupy my mind with that. And all I was thinking was, okay, just put your left foot in front of your right, left foot in front of your right. This feels like a good pace. I, you feel like you're moving quickly. Wait, no, acknowledge that thought, but get rid of it. Left foot mm-hmm. in front of your right, keep going. Don't stop until you get home, right? I get mm-hmm. back to the house and it was like, I did three and a half miles at 28 minutes. Mm. And I was like, what just happened? One, I was pissed because I still had to do, I didn't know what to do. So I just started doing sprints in my backyard. So my neighbors probably thought I was crazy. But mm-hmm. the. <laughs> you just like, Dude, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Like picture it. <laughs> And for those for those listening, my backyard is probably maybe twenty five yards long, so it was just sprint from one fence, touch backpedal, sprint from one fence, touch backpedal. Like then I would do like oh, lunges. Backpedal. Oh yeah, man. It was oh, yeah. No. And Russ was just <laughs> Russ was just sprinting alongside me the whole time, but like just obsessing over because usually I, when I was training for a ten k, right, which I didn't do to completion. I would obsess about like, okay, I got to do seven and a half miles today. Okay. So what does that look like? And my pace would be like 10 and a half minutes or 11 minutes at times. But without, without like the idea of like trying to govern my govern myself and like just kind of focusing on the task at hand, knowing that there's a start and I will eventually get to the finish and obsessing over each step and just focusing on my breathing and the form and like just the pacing. And then, once you start doing that, you get into a zone. And once you get into a zone, you start realizing like, oh, the birds and the trees and the temperature outside and how your legs feel and how the rest of your body feels. And then I was home before I knew it. Mm-hmm. It was the weirdest thing. And so I don't know, like that, reading that running and then hearing that in the movie, I was like, wow, okay, there could be something here. Mm. I like it. Hollywood could teach you something. Maybe. As long as it's not Scientology. <laughs> Stay, stay away from Scientology, kids. Freaking Scientology! All Maybe right, man. After you know, well, that is that's an hour. That's an hour. That's an hour. Uh, if you are have tuned in to this, us muttering our, our way through a podcast, we appreciate you. Um, if you feel so inclined, share with your friends. Uh, we are going to be adding some social pages here soon, and Dave. I appreciate you as always. Our twelve o'clock t- in our twelve o'clock talks, um, and we'll uh, we'll reconvene next week at twelve o'clock. That sounds good, man. Alrighty, adios, yeah. guys.